Alper and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this Wednesday edition of Fangraphs Audio is baseballing scholar and internetting gentleman Mark Normandon. You might be familiar with Mark's work in the past from Beyond the Box Score or Baseball Prospectus. In the last year, he's returned to the SB Nation family of blogs, where, among other various and sundry duties, he co-manages Boston Red Sox site Over the Monster. In what follows, Normandon and I discuss his past both as a baseballing and also video gaming writer, including the particular joys of MLB The Show's Road to the Show mode. We look at Boston Red Sox teams of the past, and in slightly more depth, the present. And finally, I allow Normandon several minutes to promote shamelessly and without shame a project on which he's working with other noted interneting gentlemen, Sky Cockman, a forthcoming ebook called The Hall of Very Good which will feature contributions from baseballing writers whose names you will definitely recognize, including one that belongs to the present podcast host. It's Mark Norman of the Internet. It's Fangraphs Audio, and it begins right now. Hey, I'm just saying, I live in the moment, Mark Normandon. When you talk about Carson oh. Stuhl, you're talking about a guy who's living in the moment. I can appreciate that. Where are you living? Um, I guess I'm right now living in the moment as well, since I mean, I don't have power over the control button. Of the button. I think you're also living in um, Lowell. Are you living in Lowell? Uh, close to that. That area. The Lowell <laughs> area, the suburbs of Lowell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, with its towering spires and, you know, stretched out land. Imagine um, metropolis of northeast Massachusetts. Lowell, though, with its uh, beautiful red red brick buildings, uh, red brick buildings and streets. Oh, yeah, the old uh, the old mills that basically, you know, built the city. Right, yeah. I mean, Lowell, um, and it's, I've been led to believe, although uh, my sources are frequently wrong um, and or impaired in one way or another. I've been uh, uh, led to believe that Lowell is a city on the rise. Uh, I think, it, you know, they did some, like, All-American city nominations, maybe the last census, and that was one of the finalists. So, uh, I mean, maybe it peaked then. Maybe it's already had its rise, and now it's now it's just whatever again. You think it's plateaued at some level, it, to some degree? Yeah, maybe it, you know, it reached its peak, like, All-America. Like, you can't do better as an American city than being an All-American city. I mean, that's pretty good. All-American? Yeah, I mean, yeah. but where do you go after that, you know? All-world. That's actually where you go. Or, uh, I mean, you could start All-Continent, too. That's true. I mean, how do, you think it's, all, how do you think it stacks up? How does it stack up against Bogota, for example? Bogota, <laughs> Colombia, I think. I don't know. I'm not... What am I, a geographer? I haven't been. How are there, how are there, how are there brick buildings? How are there canals? Do they have minor league teams? Um, they probably have two of those things. I, I can't tell you which though. There are, uh, mm, there are baseball players from Columbia, I think. Was it, was it not, uh, there was probably some Cabrera from there. I'm, I'm thinking Orlando, but I could be very wrong. No, I think that's where he's from. Okay. We're gonna, you're going to get so many angry emails and comments now because he's not from Colombia. Um, I'll say 
that that's a possibility, but I think that also our listeners have come to expect the least. Yeah, they've come to they've developed low expectations for the podcast. Mm. See, unlike Lowell, you you still have a place to go. That's we do, right? Well, that's that. the secret. Um, uh, start from the bottom, and uh, that way you can only go up. Yeah, and in fact, it does appear as though uh, it does appear as though Orlando Cabrera is is from Colombia. I've just used the internet um, to find that out, and I would guess that he and Edgar Renteria, are, um, who is probably the other most famous Colombian native, um, not only did they both have they both played shortstop for. Oh God! They've both played sh- shortstop for the Red Sox, which is the team nearest and dearest to your heart. Um, they've also both played shortstop, maybe for the Giants. Does that sound right? Yeah, and I think they both played shortstop for the Reds as well. They both played shortstop for the. Oh yes, that's in- that is also true. Yeah, they've really been following each other, uh, one after the other, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, who do you think has a higher career WAR without looking? Without uh, looking. Uh... It's probably true. It's going to take a lot of interneting to find that out. A lot of clandestine interneting. Um, listen, uh, Mark, the reason I've... Well, I, it wasn't so much that I asked you. It's that Sky Kalkman. Kalkman or Kalkman? Uh, I think the latter, but... Okay, well, I mean, it's more fun here. to call him Kalkman, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I think that that's obvious. Uh, he he sort of informed both of us that you would be appearing on this edition of the podcast. Yeah, it's pretty much how it went down. Yeah, I got an email and uh, was told that this is where I would be. Yeah, uh, and with a view and towards with a view towards shamelessly um, selling, shamelessly uh, um, shilling on behalf of uh, the publication, the internet uh, or e publication for which you are an editor of which you are an editor. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for publicly shilling, shamelessly even. Yeah, shamelessly. Um, and so we will do that, I guess, periodically throughout throughout this episode of Fangraphs Audio. Um, I, I and I would also like to talk about the Red Sox uh, at some point too. Does that um, does that appeal to you at all? We won't go much more much longer than a half hour. So and you should feel free to tell me when to when you have more pressing obligations. Oh no, it's fine. I mean, if I'm not going to talk to you about the Red Sox, I'm going to go sit down and write about them. Oh, okay, yeah, right. right. Yeah, now, this could so. maybe get some of that. Writing could be so boring. And this way you do it in real time. And people expect much less of you uh, when you're when you're speaking than when you're writing because you have no time really to compose your thoughts. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but first I want to find out, I'll tell you, um, I joined the um, the, in, the interneting, the baseball internet community about, I guess, uh, two and a half years ago now. Um and was then only a sort of bystander up till that point. Uh, but I, but you have been around for as long as I've been conscious of fan graphs, I think. Uh, and I, I, I don't know, I, it occurred to me uh, as I was, well, I would call it prepping. What I really mean is thinking idly about uh, this podcast, uh, this episode of it. Um, I don't know what, where you, how you arrived at where you are now. You're currently at SB Nation. Uh, before that, I believe you were at Baseball Prospectus, and before that, maybe beyond the box score. Although I don't know for sure. Yeah, that's actually. I mean, that's not where I got my start. Uh, I had my own, you know, personal baseball blog, but that didn't it didn't last very long. Maybe maybe six months, and then uh, I pitched Beyond the Box Score to Tyler Blazinski, who's the founder of SB Nation, 
so you know that that was my baby originally, and that's pretty much how I got my uh, <clears throat> got my start writing. I was there for a year and a half, two years, and uh, moved to baseball prospectus at some point during that part time, and then ended up writing there more full time. And then you were, uh, and then you were poached by Rob Nyer and friends, or re, mm-hmm. or maybe re, reapproached, reapproached, because um, in fact, uh, Beyond the Box Score is a SB Nation blog. Yeah, it's kind of a weird return, uh, return home in some ways, uh, especially because the network was so different than it used to be. You know, over the monster had just been founded. Um, around the same time as Beyond the Box Score. And, you know, it was only a year, year and a half old when I had, uh, when I had originally left SB Nation and I had nothing to do with it. And, you know, now I came back and I'm, I'm co-managing it and it's just, it's significantly larger than it was. Completely different community, completely different setup. You know, other, they're completely different writers. Everything's different. Right. Uh, but a good product nonetheless. Uh, you also, I think, uh, Over the Monster is also home to, um, um to some other, Names that will be familiar to Fangrass readers, uh, Matthew Corey, who I think also is doing some work at BP now, mm-hmm. and additionally um, Patrick Sullivan. Uh, Patrick was there initially, um, but he's back with Red Sox Beacon now. Oh, did you guys have a, um, a serious falling out? No. Sully <laughs> no, uh, and I, are, and I are good buddies. Um, he's it's it's hard not to be friends with him. Or, oh, he's great. Or to talk with him um, when he's uh, intox- inebriated, entirely inebriated. <laughs> yeah, which is every time I've seen him, that's how he's been. Um, um, and then, uh, and who's the gentleman, the, uh, your co-manager at, uh, at Over the Monster? Ben Buchanan. Ben Buchanan, right. And uh, I believe, although I'm not positive, but I believe he actually lives in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, he goes to school there. Oh, okay. Or he's finishing up school there. All right. Well, then, anyway, there it is. Uh, so that's yeah, that's what we know about you. Well, so what was your website uh, before Beyond the Box Score then? You know, I honestly don't remember what I called it. It was just some random blog that had 50 accidental page views a day. 50 page views. Yeah, it's just people accidentally stumbling, you know, stumbling across it. Yeah, well, that's pretty robust. 50. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then well, it was probably it was probably never the same people ever. Oh right, yeah, it was just all um, errant uh, Google searches. You think? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and then before that, you were some sort of video game writer. Or uh, I actually, kind of, I kind of did that in between. Yeah. Um, when I was just at Baseball Prospectus, uh, before I became the fantasy manager over there, when I was just you know submitting columns a couple of times a month, um, I kind of did a year and a half or so as an editor at an online magazine. Uh, covering video games. So I used to go to conventions and completely nerd out and lots of video games that show up in the mail that I'd have to play and review and um, you know, I ran a whole crew of writers over there too. And what was the what was that site called? Uh Blast Magazine. Blast. And was that fun? You say you had to play the games. It seems like I mean it occurs to me that not every video game is fun to play, especially when there's an obligation to play it. Yeah, I mean even even games that were great, it was tough to play. Uh Random example, um, when Dragon Age came out, and that's probably one of my favorite games in the last, like, five, six years. Um, Dragon, sorry, a, what is it called, Dragon? Dragon Age. Okay. Like, we got an early copy, you know, before before reviews, uh, before the game actually launched. And, you know, the intention is to get a review there for, like, the day before it comes out or the day that it comes out. So, 
I probably spent 40 hours out of a 48-hour period playing that game. Just, you know, barely sleeping, just, you know, stopping to make food that I would eat while playing. And, you know, the game's great, but you don't get to sit and enjoy it the same way you might, like, if you were actually just playing, you know, for fun. Right. But you still, you still seem, you say, that, wait, you, you enjoyed it more than most games, or you think it is, it's objectively a great game? Or both? Um, I mean, both. Yeah, I, I, I like it, and lots of other people do as well. So it's not just something that I think is good. What about uh, baseball games? Do you ever play those? Yeah, I, I mean, I actually kept doing that a little bit after I had stopped um, stopped reviewing games uh, for a gaming magazine. But I kind of, I don't know, I've kind of stopped playing. I, like, I think I, I think I overdid it maybe with um, MLB The Show 2010 because I had it, I had it for the PS3 and I was reviewing it for that. So I had to play a lot, you know, in a short span of time for that. And then I also had a, a PSP copy that I used to have to play all the time, um, also to review it. So it's just so much of it. Like that was my life for like two weeks was just playing that game, and I, I feel like I kind of overdosed on it and now I haven't bothered to buy the last two. When you play a baseball game, do you um do you do you go right into um like a season mode or do you play uh, some exhibition games to become familiar with the controls? Uh I well I play the show because it has this road to the show thing where you create a player and you start in the low minors and you kind of go from there. So that's uh I mean that's pretty much the first thing I dove into every single year and pretty much where I spent all of my time. And that's fun. I mean, wait, there's nothing preventing you. Is there something preventing you from just giving your player whatever, like hundreds across the board? Yeah, you start with a very minimal number of points and you have to actually earn them through performance. And you can't just be ridiculously good at the game and make it work because the player's terrible from the start. And uh, your manager gives you very specific objectives. So, you know, you might do some great things, but it's not what your manager told you to do, so you don't get as many points as you could have. So, now, when you're doing that, um, does it just essentially cut to your, like, for example, if you're a third baseman, does it just cut to your plate appearance? Um, like, every time your team is at batter, do you have to just, do you have to wait through all that? No, it will cut right, uh, it'll, you know, it'll auto straight to your at-bats, it'll go to every play where you might have a play. So, you know, sometimes uh, you get a defensive play, the ball might not come to you but the play might happen around you. Uh, but generally, they'll just cut to you when you have something you're going to have to do. So you can get through games pretty quick. That sounds actually it's meant fun. To be played like over an entire career for this guy, you know, so. That sounds that's that sounds actually like a legitimately fun thing. Yeah, I have, I had a lot of fun with it, especially cuz it's kind of something you can just kind of pick up and play. I mean, if you only wanted to play for 20 minutes half an hour and you didn't want to go through a whole night in a game or do every single thing in a game, and you get to really focus on this one guy. And you have no power over whether you get traded or promoted or anything like that. So, you know, it's kind of an adventure in that sense. Did you um, do you have control over the, the uh, physical attributes of your player? Yeah, I can't remember if you can... I mean, I, mean, I think, like, the, the uh, experience ability points things kind of determines how fast they are, but I'm pretty sure you can make them, you know... Freakish proportions, and then still give them certain like qualities that would normally fit. Can you make them particularly handsome? I mean, maybe they have that technology now. Did Did you make your player um, look like you? Uh, see, I never, I never been able to do that. 
I don't know, I usually just kind of take one of the, uh, one of the default faces, and this is for pretty much anything, and just kind of tweak it a little bit. I, I don't spend a ton of time on generating the, uh, the faces or, uh, for players, or anything even in like, you know, some random role-playing game where you're supposed to create your character. You don't care for that. It's fun, but only to a point. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, um, are you able to decide uh, in which franchise your player starts in that game? I think you can. Um, yeah, you you can. So you know, you set your position, and then you either pick you know like the team you want to play on. Because you know, I used to sometimes I'd pick like the Padres or the Red Sox just because. But my guy would be like a third baseman. So then at the same time, I was like, well. I'm just going to be stuck behind Kevin Euclid forever, so why would I pick the Red Sox? So then I go to, like, the Brewers, who had nobody at third. Right. And and, and they do have someone at third now. Do you know that? Uh, Ar- Aramis Ramirez plays there. Are you, do you know about him? Who's he? I've never heard of this man. <laughs> well, we'll get to that at the end of the podcast. Uh, just as an update, by the way, uh, Edgar Renteria uh, does, in fact, have more career war, uh, Fangrass war, than um, Orlando Cabrera. 39.6. Go on for living in the moment. Yeah, 39.6 to 29. Exactly. Ooh. Yeah, so there you go. That'd be a little closer. But. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, you're both, uh, as you noted briefly there, you are both a Padres and Red Sox fan. This is correct. Yeah. Now, I know, um, I can guess why you're a Red Sox fan, which is that you live and I believe we're, um, have, have lived all your life, if, or at least most of your life, in uh, Massachusetts and environs. Mm-hmm. Why are you a Padres fan, too? Uh, my mother lived in San Diego for a while, so I kind of grew up hearing about, you know, Tony Gwynn and Jim Rice in equal amounts. And it, it didn't do anything for me in football, maybe because the Chargers are the Chargers, but in baseball it didn't. You know, I, I got both Padres and Sox. And I always enjoyed them, and then they were, you know, they were a decent team uh, as I was growing up, too, uh, at times better than the Red Sox were. So, you know, it wasn't a hard sell for, like, a little kid. And then they ended up trading for Brian Giles, who was probably my favorite player at that time. Right. If not necessarily a great fit for Petco. I mean, he's still a good player there, but, you know, finding a great fit for Petco is is probably one of the harder tasks in all of baseball. Um, What do you think are the gentleman's rules about team allegiance? And specifically... Uh, for how many teams is a is a gentleman, a, a gentleman baseball enthusiast allowed to have, like real affection? Uh, you know, I've, I obviously think two is fine. Um, or you hate I, yourself. That's that. the other option. Is you're a <laughs> self-loathing fan of two teams? Why do I like two teams? What's wrong with me? Uh, two is, seems like a magic number, but to add on to that, uh, having one in each league seems like that's the compromise you have to make. Right, it has to be. The Padres rarely face each other. If they ever did get to the playoffs and face each other in the World Series, you know, a couple years ago, I I would have rooted for the Red Sox to win because, you know, they hadn't won in forever and their lack of winning was a little different than the Padres' lack of winning. But uh, in 2007, for instance, before the Padres lost that uh, play-in game, the the, uh, game 163. Right. I would have been fine with the Padres uh, beating the Red Sox, you know, if they, had, if they had met up. So you think... But it's so rare that you get those kind of situations, uh, and that's kind of why I like the, 
the ALNL. Did, did your um, um, and I, I think that uh, now actually on during the over the monster podcast we we talked about this um, with regard to to my own um, Red Sox fandom, which it didn't necessarily. I mean, it, it did decline after the World Series in '04. But what really happened is I kept celebrating into 2005, and in some way, I'm still celebrating, such that it's impossible uh, for me to live in the moment, as it were, uh, for the Boston Red Sox. What happened to uh, what happened to your fandom, your Red Sox fandom, after the team won in 2004? Um, I mean, it's hard to look at things as as negatively as like maybe I used to and many other people used to uh, pre 2004. Um, you know, 2005, the fact they lost in the playoffs, it was great that they got there, but they lost. But it was probably the easiest playoff loss to handle to that point. You know, because they had just still won, and there was kind of just kind of that halo, you know, where it was like, well, can't be too upset because they just won last year and they still made the playoffs. And by the way, they won last year. Right. And but do you think that that they, so they had for you sort of like a one season in which they would receive a, I guess a a pass from you, but then uh, starting then. Yeah, I would say I was a little less patient in 2006 when things didn't go well. Um, I mean, you, you want your team to win all the time. And I don't get ridiculous about it and, you know, start calling for heads when they don't win. But it was definitely, uh, 2006 was more upsetting than 2005, which is actually kind of a good feeling because, you know, as a, it, it was good to kind of know I still cared. Now, with regard to the sort of, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm aware of this, and, and I think it's changed a little bit perhaps since, the, you know, um, sites like Over the Monster Red Sox Beacon, et cetera, had become available. So it's able, you know, you're able to experience um, a discourse regarding the Red Sox it's conducted at a slightly higher level, maybe with a little bit more reasonably. Um, but growing up in the Boston market, it was impossible to escape hysteria at almost every turn, whether the hysteria was positive or negative. And, you know, so long as Dan Shaughnessy's been around, frequently it's been negative. Um, I wonder if, to, to any degree, if that has informed. Um, your fandom, whether before or after uh, the Red Sox uh, World Series victories, and then and then maybe in particular as regards uh, the Red Sox, um, um, the Red Sox missing out on the playoffs last year, you know whether due or not to uh, consumption of alcoholic beverages in the in the the locker room. Um, I mean, I wasn't <clears throat> I wasn't totally into the Over the Monster community uh, during the 2007 World Series, and Over the Monster didn't exist during the 2004 uh, World Series. Um, so I guess it would have been hard for me to be able to be part of it then. But you were uh, still subject to the to the larger Boston media at that point. Yeah, and I mean, that was just almost entirely negative. But, you know, what else did anybody know at that point? Because <laughs> it wasn't even the, the version of the Red Sox that made the playoffs every year and failed. You know, the one just coming off like the end of the Dan Duquette era, where they were just mediocre. You know, despite pretty much everything that they did. Right. Although and coming I'm, off of the 2003 heartbreak and. Right, leading up to it, yeah, right. It was never going to. There was there was never really going to be any admission that the Red Sox would win the World Series until they actually, or they could win the World Series until they did win the World Series. Yeah, even remember, uh, it wasn't just locally. The Fox broadcast during the World Series and during the uh, series against the Yankees, 
it was just every single Babe Ruth reference and 1986 reference and 1975 reference that they could throw in in video form or just, you know, speak it out loud that was there. Like, that was half the broadcast at times. Or at least that's what it sounded and felt like. You don't think that you were slightly biased as a Red Sox fan? Uh, I mean, they were just trying to create some more drama, you know, based on what they had. And since I'm still talking about it now, I guess they succeeded. Yeah, looks like they yeah looks like they did a good job with that. Now, as I mentioned, um, you, Mark Normand, are uh, Mark Normand and our co-editor of a, of a forthcoming ebook called The Hall of Very Good. I want to get to that momentarily. This is what's called a teaser. I'm just letting our listeners know what's to come. Uh, but with regard to, um, I'm interested for the president, um, the the 2012 version of the Boston Red Sox, uh, the AL East if possible, has become even more competitive by virtue of the fact that um, the Yankees are still quite good uh, and have acquired both Hiroki Kuroda and Michael Pineda over, uh, over the offseason. Um, the Rays are still quite good. And, in fact, it's very possible, if not this year, but in the, in the next couple of years, the Toronto Blue Jays could also be quite good because they have a, a surfeit of uh, high-ceiling prospects um, now reaching the high minors. Orioles are not good. That is a fact. But I'm curious as to what uh, you know, what you've thought about the Red Sox. Uh, you know, some would say tumultuous offseason and how it affects their prospects uh, for 2012. You know, they had the worst collapse, arguably in the history of baseball, or maybe even not arguably. Maybe it's definitive fact. Um, Last September, they went seven and twenty. Uh, their pitchers had a collective ERA of something upwards of six, if not over it, and it was awful. Uh, and despite one of the worst months just any good team has ever had in the history of baseball, they won ninety games. They missed the playoffs by a game. Uh, they didn't lose. You know, they lost Papelbon, probably the most significant piece that they lost. But as good as he is, he's still a reliever. You know, so his impact is still only so much. It's it's hard to not be excited about 2012, even with the way things ended, just because the roster that made them so good in the first place that allowed them to win 90 games despite all of the problems is still here. And then they made a bunch of moves, bringing in Mark Melanson, bringing in Andrew Bailey, uh, getting Ryan Sweeney for right field. It's just a place they got almost no production out of last year, thanks to J.D. Drew being hurt and uh, not playing well when he when he was healthy. And there's a lot to there's a lot to look forward to. I think they're going to be a very good team. And people writing them off like the Yankees and Rays are automatically going to finish ahead of them. You know, they're letting September cloud uh, cloud what the team really is, which is one of the best teams in baseball. It seems to me um, as though uh, Clay Buckholtz might be an important piece of that team this year. Um, he has been very good before. Um, he's also been poor, and last year he was injured for much of the season. I'm not, uh, I don't have his exact innings total at the ready, but um, it was certainly less than, than Red Sox fans and, and uh, front office would have hoped. Is is Clay Buckles? Is he really a mystery, um, or is he just? Um, is it just a case of him getting healthy for him to become effective? I think it's just being healthy and. Uh, the problem that he had, he had a stress fracture in his spine, uh, and those kinds of injuries are caused by 
you know, specific repetitive motions. So there was something in his in his mechanics that kind of caused this problem to happen. Uh, and pretty, you know, they pretty much told him, "Hey, if you stop doing that, it won't happen again." So you know, he had already worked. He, he didn't get to pitch again last year, but he was already pitching on the side and working towards coming back. And had the Red Sox made the playoffs, he actually probably would have pitched in the playoffs. You know, out of the bullpen, most likely, but you know, he still would have still would have been there. So they think he's fine. He thinks he's fine, uh, and he's been real good in the past. I mean, I don't think he's 2.3 ERA good or whatever it was he did in 2010, but he's not as bad as uh, say FIP suggests he is either. Because you know, there's different ways to succeed as a pitcher, and uh, Buckles might be one of those guys who is able to uh, post a, a lower than average uh, batting average on balls in play. Now, uh, if I'm not mistaken, at some point the Red Sox, um, and you mentioned uh, recently with regard to the stress fracture, there was some mention of, of a, an alteration in mechanics. If I'm not mistaken, though, uh, even before that, I don't know if it was two, you know, two or three years ago now, um, the Red Sox altered, uh, you, know, you know, in partnership with Buckles, they altered his uh, mechanics um, such that I think I think he had thrown a curveball, um, like a hammer curve that maybe he lost. But he also started getting, uh, inducing a number of um, of ground balls, such that his uh, ground ball rate increased dramatically. I, I'm curious: is is he still? Which version of Buckholtz um, will we see in 2012, so long as he's healthy? Uh, well, the curveball's still gone. I mean, he very rarely throws a curve. It's it's kind of just a reminder that he could if he wanted to. Uh, I don't think he expects anyone to swing and miss at it. It's just kind of a surprise. And he is mostly. Uh, fastball. He throws a four-seamer and a two-seamer. Uh, they both do slightly different things as far as movement goes, but they're both good at inducing grounders. Uh, he used to have a slider, but he changed the grip two years in a row to make it more cutter-like. So he used to go 81 miles an hour back when he back when he threw the curveball, but now it goes 90 and it's a cutter. And his best pitch is actually his changeup. It's probably his filthiest pitch. And he uses it the least out of the three, but it's still the most effective of the group. Now that changeup is that is that a pitch he had when he when he first came up to the minors in I guess uh, 2008. Yeah, actually, uh, when Buckles first came up, I noticed that he didn't like to attack hitters that much, so he wouldn't use his fastball as often. He used to use the changeup a lot more. He kind of pitched backwards to hitters. Uh, during the no hitter that he threw, he actually used the changeup just a whole lot. He'd start guys out with it, and they'd be fooled from the start and. You know, he kind of kept them off balance to the game because they didn't really know what was coming from him because he had such a, you know, backwards way of pitching. Uh, yeah. It, that, uh, would you draw at that level any comparisons to James Shields? Uh, because I know Shields is sort of probably the, the pitcher, um, certainly in the AL East, maybe in the majors, most famous for being effective while pitching backwards. I mean, are they similar in that regard or, or are they more different? Uh, they have kind of different goals. I mean, Shields doesn't walk as many guys. Uh, I think he attacks hitters a little more. Uh, he's got better strikeout numbers. You know, Buckle has the stuff to strike guys out, but his intention is not to strike you out. His intention is to get uh, weak weak contact and ground balls and strike you out on occasion. So, you know, his K to walk is never going to be pretty like James Shields is just because they approach things a different way. And um, well, I'll ask you one more question about this version of the Red Sox before we move on to the, the um, very important publication, uh, forthcoming ebook, uh, Hall of Very Good. Um, with regard to Carl Crawford, um, obviously there's a lot of hand-wringing, I guess, um, 
amongst the Red Sox front office and fans and probably fantasy owners everywhere as well uh, regarding Carl Crawford's 2011 season, uh, which was, you know, not Crawford-esque, I guess, uh, in its quality. Is there is there any sort of mystery regarding what made his 2011 poor, and does that sh- you know shed any light on on what he'll do in 2012? I guess provided you know when if and when he comes back healthy from from his present wrist injury. I mean, we've got a lot of ideas, but it's one of those things where we're going to have to see it play out to see if our ideas have any merit. Well, what's uh, one of those swing, ideas? Yeah. Well. Supposedly, uh, and you could kind of see this, I don't know how much of Crawford you saw last April, but, and I know we're all about numbers and everything and everything that you can measure, but you could see Crawford trying way too hard at the start of last year. You know, he wanted, he wanted to hit everything out of the park, he wanted to do the best thing he could do every plate appearance, and you could just see it. And he admitted recently that when he got moved down in the lineup, he felt serious pressure to improve so that he could go back to the free spot. You know, he thought it was kind of like a punishment. And he was like, oh, well, I can't keep struggling because, you know, then I'm going to be stuck here forever and then I'm not going to help the team and I've got this huge contract. And and then he ended up having an injury. You know, he came back a little bit, uh, started getting some game-winning hits, everything started coming together, and then he hurt his hamstring. You know, he came back from the hamstring and he actually hit pretty well, but his uh, his swing was still kind of all out of, all out of sorts. And uh, now famously, Bobby Valentine... Uh, complained about his stance and said it was far too open and he was never going to be able to generate any consistent power and pitchers were going to exploit him. And, you know, people thought, oh, Crawford's going to be so mad now that Bobby Valentine's manager and he criticized him. But Crawford actually agreed. He's like, well, I spent, you know, the winter looking at video and my stance was too open. So he's modified it to go back to more what it was like, uh, prior to 2011 when he came over to the Red Sox. And then there's the wrist thing. We don't know how much it affected him. Charrington and Crawford don't seem to think it was a big deal, like it hurt more in the off season than it did during the year. But you know, if his wrist is healthy, his stance is fixed. You know, he he doesn't have that pressure of the first year of a new big deal. Maybe we get the Crawford of old this year. Well, at least the expectations are lowered. Yeah, I mean, everyone will forget about the first season if he comes back and does well, because at this point, people are so depressed about his 2011 and the fact that he has six years left in his deal that. They expect him to just continue to fail, especially after a September where every conceivable thing that could go wrong went wrong. All right. Well, let's hope, um, I mean, for your sake, I guess, that the Red Sox do well and probably make your life better. Uh, let's uh, let's discuss something um, that is uh, that is definitely not going wrong. In fact, is is going very right, and that's a uh, a project on which you're working. Uh, with other noted um, interneting baseball gentlemen, Sky Kalkman, Sky Cockman, we're going with Cockman uh, in this case, uh, called the Hall of Very Good. It's a it's an ebook project uh, involving a number of authors uh, who will uh, be familiar um, to um, readers of uh, Fangraphs and lis- uh, listeners to Fangraphs Audio. Uh, I guess before we get into any specific names or or um, pieces. Uh, can you just give a, a sense of, of what this project is? Yeah. Uh, I've, I've kind of had a thing for the kind of players we're going to write about for a really long time, and I think, you know, I'm not alone in that. Uh, it's, it's really easy to root for the best players in baseball, but a lot of people's favorite players tend to be kind of that second-tier guy. Uh, you know, the guy's not going to be remembered in the Hall of Fame. He's not going to be remembered through history. But they've had enough of their own huge moments, and they've played alongside some of the best players in the game, 
you know, uh, throughout their own long and productive careers. And those guys are kind of forgotten in history. You know, there's no, there's no real place to put them. And, uh, the Hall of Very Good is one of those kind of concepts that's just existed, you know, kind of in space for, you know, 20 years at least. And, uh, you just kind of wanted to make it, make it an actual reality. But, you know, every, every winter we get these discussions about the Hall of Fame and who deserves it and who isn't. And it all gets really kind of bloody angry. You know, it's just not a positive time. You know, you're trying to celebrate, you try and celebrate, uh, Reply 11, but you do it by absolutely dismantling Jack Morris. Right. And we didn't want to do something like that. You know, we wanted to do a positive project about these guys. You know, even someone who maybe is a Hall of Fame snub, we just want to talk about all the positives in their career. We don't want to have to, you know, tear anyone else down or anything like that. We want this to be everyone's moment, especially for players who just haven't received that moment and deserve one. Can you talk about the, um, the the people who are contributing? And, uh, and I should say I'm one of them. That's a fact. Um, although it, it's neither here nor there so far as this question is concerned. What is the sort of editorial directive you're giving to the contributors? I mean, um, I know from having corresponded with you that you're saying that you don't necessarily want like like a hardcore statistical argument. So so what is the alternative to that? Uh. You know, it'll it'll sound like kind of a cop out on, you know, on this podcast. But I just want the writers to do what they do. I want them, you know, I want the most Carson Sestouli take on your player and choice, player of choice. You know, I want the most Rob Nyer take on something, uh, the most Stephen Goldman take, you know, that sort of thing. I I don't want a collection of essays that are all kind of read the same and they're all in the same voice and they're all the same style and they're all just kind of like point A, B, you know. I want everything to be done the way they think the story should be told. You know, in the style that, in the style that I love their writing for. Writing about players that they loved watching. So the idea is, is essentially just to, to trust, to choose writers that you like and you trust, and then you trust them to do what they normally do, um, but it happens in this case to fit within the, the confines or the, the scope, I should say, the scope of the project. Exactly. I want a book to come out of this that's a book that I want to read too. Because this is a book I want to read, and it doesn't exist. Um, I want to add. It would be a lot better with all of you guys writing about it instead of just me. Right, right, right. Now we should say there is a, a Kickstarter. Uh, a Kickstarter page exists for this, and um, so far as I know, uh, people are still allowed to give money. Now, why would they give money? You you have a pledge goal of three thousand dollars, and you have um, about seven and a half thousand dollars. Why would someone give money, Mark Norman, and to you, you wealthy? You already wealthy stealing editor. Well, uh, the three thousand initial goal was basically the bare bones. This is the least amount of money we can get to be able to do this project. It was with thirty contributors. Um, you know, we weren't going to be able to afford an editor, which means Sky and I were going to have to do it. And uh, since we ended up making our goal in the first four days, I think, you know, we started to we, we promised this in the Kickstarter itself. You know, if we make more money, we can bring on more writers. You know, so we can cover more players. You'll get to see more of your favorites. Um, you can pre-order a copy, even if, uh, even though we've already hit our total. And I mean, that's that's kind of the big thing now because we've probably hit our writers cap. Uh, we added two more today, so I think we're at 40 or 41, which is that's a whole lot of writers. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, I think I saw it suggested somewhere on on Twitter. Although I should ask you directly, um, 
um, because we're now so far over the, the, the goal, the pledge goal of $3,000, um, is there any chance that we get a baller party uh, if and when this project is completed? Well, you know, the problem with that is we either have a party or we have more writers. Hmm. So, you know, we already, we already promised more writers. So unless they want to fund the party with, with their new funds yeah. for being able to do this, yeah. I mean, it's on them, basically. So it's their fault if we don't have a party, not mine. Okay. And I want to ask you about, too, uh, there was a um, – there were a number of different uh, pledge uh, levels. Mm-hmm. One of them was $250 or more. And at that uh, at that level, which was only open to five people, and it's it's been sold out for a while now, I think actually. Um, in fact, you said that if someone gives two hundred fifty dollars or more, you will write uh, an entry for that um, said you know pledger's favorite player, whichever player they chose, even for example, if it's Tony Womack. I'm so glad that nobody suggested Tony Womack. Right, no one suggested Tony Womack. Uh, however, uh, as I mentioned, they've all been sold out, um, all of the, these uh, these opportunities at this level. And are we allowed to know which players have been requested? Uh, yeah, I can share that. Uh, not we haven't heard from all the pe- all five of the people. Some of them said that they want you know. There's no rush for them to say it. We've got a bunch of other players to cover, so uh, you know they're, they're going to think on it for a little bit. But the, the very first one we got was Eric Davis. Oh, okay, yeah. Eric Davis is fantastic. You know, by the by the qualifications we set, he just missed it here as well. You know, I mean, he's the kind of guy with Hall of Fame talent who, because of injuries and things like that, never got to be Hall of Fame level. But the injuries also kind of kept him from doing enough to get to even Hall of Very Good levels. But he's also a guy that we're happy to have involved because he's, you know, he's very close. Uh, any, you know, super exciting player, and people should absolutely know how great he was. And we also had uh, Andy Messersmith was another one. Which is another guy who was pretty close, and you know he's got his own history that's worth exploring as well. Okay. Well, there are a couple guys. Well, it's an interesting project. Um, I'm I'm happy to be participating, um, and I'm uh, happy. To, uh, I'll be happy to read it uh, certainly when it's available. Um, and it will be. You say it's an ebook. What does that mean precisely? Do I have to read it on my computer? Uh, if you've got a if you've got an e-reader, you know, a Nook or a Kindle or something like that. I can read it on that, uh, but it's also going to be available so that, you know, if you have an e-reader device on your Android phone or your iPhone or your iPad or even your BlackBerry, uh, you can read it on that. But it's also available, you know, on your computer. So pretty much any mobile device, any computer, anything like that, you're going to be able to read it. I can read it on uh, iBooks on my iPod Touch? Uh, yeah, probably. Boom shakalaka. It's... <laughs> We, we specifically are using the format that is uh, most widely accepted by everything. So, you know, regardless of whatever e-reader affiliation you have, or whether it's a phone or an MP3 player or whatever, it'll be available there. Well, all right, Mark Norman, I'm going to uh, let you go back to the Internet um, where you belong. Uh, is, is there, do you feel like there's anything that we've omitted here um, that's important um, to be said, to be covered? Them no. Okay. Yeah, I mean, um, oh, let me. I'll just get up this one thing about um, the pre-orders. Uh, it's ten dollars for the minimum donation to get a pre-order for the Hall of Very Good book, and that's going to be cheaper than when we eventually sell it uh, in July. And you'll also get it a week early. Your name will be added to the donations page. So 
you know, there's some incentives that if you plan on, if you're planning on getting this, you know, do it now. And we can also use that money to invest further in the book. That sounds exciting. People can go to, uh, well, I guess probably the easiest way is to is to Google Kickstarter and Hall of Very Good. Uh, I will also put up a link um, on Fangraphs so that people can access it there. Works for me. Works for me, too. That's so easy. Hey, uh, Mark Norman, thank you very much for joining us on Fangraphs Audio. Hey, thanks for having me. And I'm going to um, ask you to stick around. We can have uh, adult conversation uh, after I stop recording. Yeah, adult conversation. In any case, that is Mark Normanden of the Internet, uh, and in particular, editor of the forthcoming ebook Hall of Very Good. I am and will continue to be Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.